Our heart affects every part of our body. If the heart fails, the body fails. As an interesting side note, perhaps, did you know most heart attacks reportedly occur on Monday? I think maybe pastors can resonate with that. My over-simplistic understanding is that the heart has two sides. The right side pumps deoxygenated blood to the lungs, where it is oxygenated. The blood then returns to the left side of the heart, where it is pumped to the brain and to the body. The pathways of the heart need to properly function in order for us to avoid vascular disease. That's the physical state of the heart. But the Bible talks about it spiritually as the ruling center of the whole person. The way we characterize someone comes about according to the state of his or her heart. Is an individual wise, pure, loving, kind, righteous, forgiving, and so on? To answer that, look at the heart. Proverbs 4, verse 23 reads, Watch over your heart with all diligence, because from it flow the springs of life. What then shall become of our heart? Will we have a Monday morning heart attack, or will the springs of life flow from it? We are in Exodus chapter 7 this morning, verses 8 to 13. Exodus 7, beginning at verse 8, if you are so able, I would ask that you stand in honor of the reading of God's holy word. Once again, Exodus chapter 7, and beginning at verse 8. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, perform a miracle, then say to Aaron, take your staff and throw it down before Pharaoh, and it will become a snake. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron threw his staff down in front of Pharaoh and his officials, and it became a snake. Pharaoh then summoned wise men and sorcerers, and the Egyptian magicians also did the same things by their secret arts. Each one threw down his staff, and it became a snake. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Yet Pharaoh's heart became hard, and he would not listen to them, just as the Lord had said. So ends the reading of God's word. First, we see the emergence of a messenger's heart. Moses and Aaron both appear before the Pharaoh, but I want to focus only on Moses for a moment. J. Alec Moyer claims that Exodus could fruitfully be treated as a study of the developing character of Moses, a man, as we say, growing into the job. How many of us can relate to that phrase, growing into 
the job. I've been growing into the job as a dad for over 11 years now. I have been growing into the job as a pastor for over 25 years now. I am sad to admit how much growing I still have to do. In what ways or in what roles do you still need to grow? I know this, to be suited for whatever job God has for us, we first need to grow to be more like Jesus. Jesus says in John 4, verse 34, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Referencing Christ, Hebrews 10, verse 7 says, then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. It seems that Moses finally reaches such a point of genuine submission. He no longer questions God, but simply goes as he is directed. The text does not tell us precisely the way in which Moses finally arrives to this state of being, but I suggest it is because he is now broken. Moses has faced failure. Moses has dealt with fears. Moses has endured scrutiny. And he has walked through seasons of profound self-doubt. But now I think Moses is fully emptied of himself. My good friends John and Lisa Martinez are here, and they come to my mind. I remember sitting with them over lunch not long ago when they shared about a possible venture that they had in mind to assist young women in overcoming substance abuse and addiction. As I sat and listened, I thought, well, I need to be helpful. And so I began to speak about that which I did not know. It's another way in which I need to grow. I mentioned how obviously the finances would need to add up and so on and so on. Only I was humbled by John's response. He told me that they had already lost their daughter, Chloe to substance abuse, and that they were prepared to lose everything in order to prevent others from experiencing the same type of loss. They simply wanted to serve God, regardless of the cost. That is the heart of a messenger of God, emptied of self to do his will no matter the cost, even if the cost means bearing a cross. What does the messenger of God do? Where does the messenger of God go? God sends Moses and Aaron before Pharaoh's throne. That is where Pharaoh claimed authority as a god. The Lord is using the same strategy with John and Lisa. He is using them to help strike at that which sits at the throne of a person's heart 
in the form of drugs or alcohol. Philip Graham Ryken says, this strategy is useful in remembering evangelism. One of the best ways to convince people of their need of Christ is to find out what they are counting on and then show them that it cannot be trusted. In order to do precisely that, we need to see the heart of the message. Stay with me for a moment and trace something significant within Egyptian culture. The Egyptians were terrified of snakes. As a result, many of them carried amulets as a protection from Apophis, the serpent god. And yet, despite their fear of snakes, ancient Egyptians worshipped them. Because of this, the Pharaoh used the serpent as his symbol of royal authority. The Pharaoh's ceremonial headdress was crested with a fierce female cobra. It was a way for him to declare himself as a god while also striking fear in the hearts and minds of his subjects. Part of the heart of God's message is to reveal the inadequacy of false religions and false gods of this world. By nature, these only provide an imitation of true worship. It is why the Apostle Paul writes in Galatians 4 and verse 8, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. Perhaps this further explains why the symbol of Pharaoh's authority was a serpent. Satan. The great serpent wants to destroy you. He wants to destroy people. And he often does so through deception that leads to the worship of false gods like drugs or alcohol. He does so through holding people captive in spiritual bondage. Up to this point, in our sermon series, we have seen the way that God has been positioning himself to set his people free from Egyptian bondage. To do that, he raised up a deliverer born in somewhat an unexpected way. God would guide his appointed redeemer Moses through a wilderness experience as a means of preparation. Moses would then appear to the people with miraculous signs and promises of salvation. Ultimately, we shall see that God will glorify himself by executing judgment at just the right time against the Pharaoh and all the false gods of Egypt. Moses is but a type of the Heavenly Father's true Redeemer. All of God's people were once enslaved by the power of sin. So the Father sent his only begotten Son to be born into this world in the most unexpected of ways. Read Matthew chapter 1. 
The Holy Spirit then leads Jesus into the wilderness. Read Matthew chapter 4. And then Christ ultimately comes out in power to manifest miraculous signs and wonders to the people. Read Matthew chapter 8 through 10. Ultimately, Jesus would glorify the Father by completing the work he was sent to do. Read John 17. That work was to die on the cross for our sins in order to crush the head of the serpent in accordance with the promise of Genesis 3.15. There is a war, if you will. It is a war in which the outcome is never in doubt. The one true God against the false gods of this world is really no contest at all. And yet before that war reaches its conclusion, a battle rages on. That battle is for the hearts and souls of men and women and boys and girls. Our text for today clearly lays out this battle. It asks what the response of our hearts will be when exposed the truth of God. Pharaoh had asked for Moses and Aaron to produce a sign. That's not unlike unbelievers. In Matthew 12, verse 38, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. Mind you, Jesus had already been performing signs. Yet in response, Jesus points to Jonah's restoration after three days in the belly of a large fish. He does so in part because the Ninevites to whom Jonah preached never knew of Jonah's miraculous deliverance from the fish's belly. No, they repented without any sign. Jonah's message was enough for them. Moses and Aaron's message should have been enough for Pharaoh. And while the Lord's message should be enough in itself, Jesus proclaims that he will reveal the most miraculous sign. After three days, he will conquer the belly of the grave. Now one greater than Jonah is here, he says. That's the second part at the heart of God's message, to reveal what he alone can do. The staff that Aaron threw to the ground, which turned into a snake, swallowed the imitation snakes of Pharaoh's magicians. This sign would have proven especially impressive to the Egyptians who believed that swallowing something meant acquiring all its powers and holding authority over it. The same word swallowed appears in Exodus 15:12 to describe the drowning of the Egyptians in the Red Sea. God swallows the enemies of his people. 
Most significantly, we learn in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that Jesus swallows our greatest enemy. Paul writes these words, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh, death, is your victory? Where, O oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, a greater than Jonah is here. And by his resurrection, Jesus has swallowed death. Christ has power and authority over it. The sad part is that we still see hardness of heart to this beautiful message. Earlier, Moses and Aaron told the Pharaoh that the Lord said, let my people go. That should have been enough for him. Now, God tells them to show Pharaoh the same type of sign that it gained the belief of the Hebrew people in Exodus 4, verses 29 to 31. This raises the central question, what will people do whenever confronted with God's truth? The Israelites, though stubborn, they believed, and they were saved. But Pharaoh later perished, and that's what happens to everyone who rejects the message from God. Paul writes in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 that people perish because they refuse to love the truth unto salvation. A common refrain We've already mentioned it before, appears again in verse 13. Pharaoh's heart became hard. The Hebrew usage here means that the heart is either correctly set or that it is stubborn and ought to be changed. Obviously, Pharaoh's heart needed changing. But I don't read his heart being hardened in some predetermined fashion. In fact, Pharaoh's situation is not peculiar to himself. It is common to the human condition. The choices that we make contribute to forming our character. And in turn, our forged character promotes our making similar choices going forward. Sometimes it takes a number of choices to produce a fixed habit. Other times, our choice is just one. Choosing and habit forming are things we all know about, yet none of us know when the point of no return shall be reached. Sadly, we can pass the point where the freedom to change has been lost, all the while retaining the illusion that I can give this or that up anytime I want. 
Sadly, that's too often the case with those who are addicted to substances. Take a boat headed down a river for a deadly waterfall. When it first enters into the water, there is no set determination that the boat has to pass the point of no return. And yet, if you wait too long, the boat eventually comes to a place where it can no longer turn back. By all accounts, Pharaoh has not yet reached that point. Sadly, though, he will. That is the lesson for us. I want you please to hear it. Do not stay in your boat too long, lest you reach the point of no return. None of us can say that God has not provided us with enough evidence. Psalm 19 verse 1 says God makes himself known through his creation. Romans 1 verse 19 says God makes himself known through our conscience. John 13 35 says God makes himself known through the love of the church. The four gospel accounts each show that God makes himself known through a cross and an empty tomb. Oh, there's plenty of evidence. The issue is not an evidential one. It's a spiritual one. Just like people sometimes need heart surgery on their physical heart, spiritual hardness of heart is a cardiac condition that can only be treated by a complete transplant, and it requires a great physician. His name is Jesus. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. The most important question anyone will ever be asked and the most important question that anyone will ever answer is simply this, have you repented of your sin? And have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior? What is the response of your heart? Salvation is in no other name but the name of Jesus. And that we, as a church, would love people enough to ask them that question and help guide them in an answer and pray that they would not be like the Pharaoh who stayed in his boat far too long. Pray with me. Lord, give us hearts that are tender. Give us hearts, Spirit of God, that grow to be like Moses 
that when he was asked to do something, eventually he got to the place where he submitted and he said, whatever your will is, God, I'll do it. That would be our hearts. Whatever your will is, God, we'll do it. And help us, I pray, to share the truth of the gospel, the love of Christ, with those who are lost and following the false gods of this world. This is our prayer, Christ, to be exalted in this place, be exalted among this people. Work in our hearts, spirit, we pray. Indeed, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.